I think there's an opportunity right now for the academy to demonstrate for the larger culture what it means to treat people who think differently from us with dignity. Our larger culture doesn't know how to do that right now. The academy, who already has these larger commitments to respect for human dignity, respect for freedom of ideas, we should be modeling what it means to take those values seriously. Shirley Mullen on Heterodox Out Loud. I'm Zach Rausch. Today, in the true spirit of open inquiry and viewpoint diversity, we look at a deeply counterintuitive claim within the free speech movement in higher education, that mandatory faith statements at universities may actually support and advance academic freedom. Our guest today is Shirley Mullen, who served as president of Houghton College, a Christian liberal arts school, for 15 years. She retired in May of last year. Next week, Shirley will be speaking along with three other university presidents at HXA's 2022 conference in Denver, which is just days away. In our interview, we discuss the origins of liberal arts education, the tensions and harmonies between religion and higher ed, and why she believes that mandatory faith statements can support open inquiry and constructive disagreement in institutions of higher learning. Before we chat, we'll listen to her blog post, In Defense of Faith Statements, read by Stina Nielsen. The commitment to follow the evidence wherever it leads has long been the foundational core of professional integrity within the academy. No matter what the discipline, no matter whether one is a researcher or a teacher, no matter the mission statement of one's institution, no matter even the growing diversity of views as to what counts as reliable evidence. This is the mantra that binds the Guild of Higher Education together. The Prima Facie Case Against Faith Statements Nothing would seem, at first glance, so inherently threatening to this shared and professionally sacred trust than the existence at some higher education institutions of mandatory faith statements or creedal commitments. See the examples of Houghton College and Wheaton College. These documents exist most frequently at institutions with some kind of religious affiliation, in some cases denominational, in other cases interdenominational or non-denominational. Either way, these statements require faculty to agree to pursue their professional activities within the framework of a shared set of doctrinal commitments. It is understandable that such a practice would precipitate unease in our contemporary world. After all, isn't part of the purpose of higher education to liberate individuals from such pre-commitments rooted in tradition or custom? Isn't part of our common lore in the academy that religion has stood in the way of science and progress? It is Galileo's confrontation with the religious authorities of his day that is remembered, and so often in a fairly generic and simplistic way, rather than the experience of other scientists, such as Robert Boyle or Isaac Newton, who found no conflict between their faith and their scientific pursuits. It was no accident that the Royal Society of London for Improving Natural Knowledge, founded in 1660, 
wanted to deal with only knowledge claims that were empirically verifiable, not those claims coming from religious or political authority associated with the turmoil of England's recent civil war. So many aspects of our Western traditions, from the Protestant Reformation, to the American commitment to the separation of church and state, to the 20th century logical positivists' credo, have made the academic community suspicious of religion. Thus, these faith statements would seem to inhibit the overall purpose or end to which all true education is directed, the liberating and expansive impact on individual and collective human flourishing. Taking a second look. Nevertheless, I would suggest that, in the true spirit of academic commitment to go beyond unquestioned assumptions, we move beyond the first glance to consider more deeply the potential drawbacks and merits of signing faith statements or creedal commitments as a precondition to employment at some academic institutions. First of all, it is worth acknowledging at the outset that one of the great treasures of higher education in the United States is the diversity of its institutions. Unlike many highly centralized national systems of higher education, the American landscape offers students a rich set of options. It makes room for students with a wide range of abilities and in different seasons of life, and offers numerous missional contexts to match students' varying desires around the purpose of education in their lives. Second, critical to each educational context is a set of assumptions that undergirds the learning environment. This set of assumptions, let's call it the learning covenant, exists within the larger shared teleological framework at all accredited colleges and universities. That is, Religious institutions are not the only ones that have faith statements or creedal commitments. Every institution has a set of undergirding principles that shapes what is considered appropriate for that institution. These principles include the boundaries of knowledge versus mere opinion, what methods are matched to the pursuit of particular disciplines and questions, e.g., we do not expect to find test tubes or spectrometers in a philosophy class, what boundaries the professor should set between what is professionally relevant and what is personal, e.g., we would expect a professor at a public institution to honor our general cultural understanding that one's religious faith is a private concern rather than epistemologically relevant to the subject matter of the classroom, and... More recently, what sensibilities should be honored in ensuring the aspirational diversity of each particular learning community? Third, one might suggest that those institutions that require signed faith statements or creedal commitments are simply making explicit what this learning covenant is at their institutions. They are laying out before prospective faculty and staff candidates those presuppositions of the philosophical, religious, and moral vision that undergird the pursuit of knowledge at that institution, rather than assuming that candidates already know what these presuppositions are. These presuppositions serve to communicate the particular commitments that are shared by the community— so that a prospective candidate can determine if this setting is a sufficiently hospitable environment 
for the productive pursuit of one's own professional aspirations, as both a professor and a scholar. Furthermore, they allow for potential misunderstandings about an institution's expectations to emerge at the time of hiring, rather than in the much more painful context of an early tenure review. Fourth, while it is certainly the case that faith statements or creedal commitments, whether signed or not, can come into apparent and sometimes very real conflict with the unfettered pursuit of evidence, it is not at all obvious that this is necessarily more likely to happen when the faith statements or creedal commitments are signed. It all depends upon what else is going on in the institution, such as the spirit and composition of the governing board, the style and personalities of the administration, the community's comfort with disagreement and its protocols for resolving conflict, the current political or social pressures within the institution or the surrounding culture, and the self-confidence of the institution to contain within itself certain tensions that inevitably arise in any serious community of learning. The potential value of making the learning covenant explicit. When appropriately understood within a commitment to overall academic integrity, there are potential educational values to the explicit nature of the faith statements or creedal commitments that are required at some religious institutions. Let me mention a few. First, when the faith statements or creedal commitments are explicit, they can be interrogated in such a way that is much more difficult when the assumptions of the learning environment are unwritten. In fact, Within religious denominations that sponsor educational institutions, it is understood that the educational institutions have an exploratory role in moving the denomination as a whole to a deeper understanding of various issues, or in advocating for reconsideration of denomination positions. The relationship between religiously committed institutions and their sponsoring governing constituencies is not a one-way relationship. It is more than simply the governing board functioning as the gatekeeper on the educational enterprise. This privilege and expectation of interrogation of the core presuppositional commitments is not comfortable, but it happens, and it is made possible largely by the explicit nature of the learning covenant. Second, when there is an explicit statement of the learning covenant, it is much easier for professors in their own self-awareness of the situation to draw students' attention to it and make students aware that there are other educational contexts than the one they currently occupy. Furthermore, professors are more likely to work intentionally to assure that students are more fully aware of the range of ways that various issues are discussed out of both their own commitment to disciplinary integrity and their desire that their students be prepared for what they will find when they move on to graduate or professional schools or into their professions. Third, when there is an explicit statement of the learning covenant, students, especially those who have come from more conservative religious backgrounds, begin with more trust in their professors. They are less likely to be on guard Consequently, they are more open to being invited into uncharted territory that challenges some of their preconceived or unexamined assumptions. 
I have heard students say that it was their experience in a Christian liberal arts context that first allowed them the mental and emotional courage to look at their core assumptions, rather than contexts where they were spending all their energy trying to hold on to their faith. In saying this, I am not at all making a statement about non-religious institutions. Rather, I am making a statement about students' subjective openness, when they trust the learning covenant, to new ideas and questions that challenge their paradigms. Furthermore, when faculty have also walked a similar journey to that of their students, Faculty are able to facilitate not simply the inherently deconstructive aspects of an excellent education, but the reconstructive aspects. On the basis of decades of observation, I would suggest that students seem to graduate from faith-based institutions more highly individuated than when they came in. Rather than the educational environment making them more like one another, given that they may share a common faith commitment, the faith-based institution seems to free them to explore the many aspects of their own lives and the world other than their faith. They also learn that not everyone who shares their religious faith shares their views on politics or controversial social-ethical issues. They are beginning to experience true diversity. In short, it may well be that the faith-based sector of American higher education has a more truly liberalizing impact than the non-faith-based sector in preparing students from a strong religious background for participation and service in a pluralistic culture. They have had the freedom to explore their disciplines alongside and in dialogue with their fundamental spiritual and moral commitments, rather than in isolation from those undergirding assumptions. They often emerge with a more integrated sense of self between their professional and personal lives. They have been invited to understand the complexity of their own religious commitments and to see that their own religious community is not monolithic. Arguably, they may be in an ideal position to serve as bridge builders and convening voices in the current polarized framework of our culture, given that religion is a critical component of that polarization. See, for example, Robert Putnam's American Grace, 2010. Finally, this explicit faith statement or creedal commitment would seem consistent with the attention given within the postmodern academy to one's perspective or situatedness as one enters the learning process and engages in the pursuit of truth. While acknowledging and eschewing the potentially limiting aspects of ideological frameworks and the divisive aspects of the often accompanying identity politics, it is certainly one of the gifts of this postmodern moment to call attention to the Enlightenment's false and blind confidence in objectivity and the possibility of finite individuals seeing perfectly clearly given the blind spots of their own context. In conclusion, in this essay, we have invited the exploration of two assertions. First, it may be more conducive in the long run to the richness and diversity of American higher education to encourage all educational institutions to be more explicit about their learning covenants, 
thus making more transparent the potential gifts that each type of institution offers to the culture and to potential students. Such a practice would also cultivate within the academy a greater awareness of the inherent epistemological limitations of each individual, each discipline, and each presuppositional framework. Second, there may be value for the entire society when students coming from conservative religious backgrounds choose to obtain their education from institutions that, while sharing the educational commitments of the broader academy, are also explicit about their creedal affirmations. At this critical moment in American society and politics, when fear and uncertainty are leading to ever greater polarization, the Academy is one of the few remaining institutions that seeks to preserve space for civil discussion and honest exploration. Further study of the comparative impact on all students of institutions with and without explicit statements of their learning covenants would seem productive both for the Academy and for society as a whole. Dina Nielsen narrating Shirley Mullen's blog post in defense of faith statements. Now, my interview with Shirley. Shirley, it is such a pleasure to have you on Heterodox Out Loud. I want to start by getting a sense of uh, who you are and what your academic story is. I was born in a family, a Christian family. My grandfathers and my dad were ministers. But it was also a family that cared a lot about education. And I was a very inquisitive child from early on. I'll just jump quickly from the family to the educational context. I chose to go to one of a number of small colleges in this country that really seeks to bring together the liberal arts and the Christian faith. And I studied history and philosophy and became really fascinated with epistemology, that is how we come to know the things that we believe we know. And I have a kinship with the skeptics over history. I worked with the Victorian free thinkers in my history dissertation and David Hume in my philosophy dissertation. And I'm just a firm believer in cultivating that freedom of ideas and honesty about dealing with people with their questions. And I never really intended to end up in the administrative side of things, but I would say that that commitment to uh, follow truth wherever it leads and to include the tensions between those affirmations of faith and reason. And so as an historian, I was very interested in the fact that in the 13th century, theology was queen of the sciences. And by the time we're in the modern period, it's really science and reason. And while I understand historically that trajectory, I also think that we're better off if we can keep the role of religion and the role of reason and science in tension rather than trying to keep one of those in the private sphere rather than the arena of public debate. You hit it right on the mark of this theoretical divide that we have of what is the role of religion in education? Should it just be completely separate? Or I like the word that you use to have it as a source of tension that's working with science and reason. Do you feel like your religious background helped lead you to being skeptical, uh, following ideas wherever they lead? Was that part of your religious upbringing? 
Well, it was, Zach, but I want to be very careful in how I say this because I know it has not been for many people. So in my own tradition, and a lot of this was my parents and my professors, they just had that confidence. And I would say it was grounded in their sense of human beings as created with minds, as created with reason and created with the curiosity. And so it was really out of that affirmation of human beings as creatures who should be thinking, should be probing their curiosity that I was taught. And so I I really think that it's a time when we need to bring back that dignity of the human questioner, dignity of the human uh, questions. And, And any questions that people have should be treated seriously. And any questioner should be treated seriously. And that's how I tried to teach. It's how I functioned in all of the uh, contexts in which I was as a professor, chief academic officer, and then president. And I'll add one more thing. I haven't used the word fear yet, but I, I think that part of why many people today find open discussion difficult is they're fearful of people having the wrong answers. And, and so it's like, oh my goodness, I'd rather dismiss you or, and we're seeing that in the culture all over the place right now, I'd rather say, oh, you shouldn't be thinking that rather than say, okay, you are thinking that. Help me understand why you're thinking that. And let's talk honestly and openly about these questions. And I think this is a good segue into your, the blog post that you wrote, which was in defense of faith statements that you wrote in October for us, because I think many people on face value see that and may think, isn't that the antithesis of feeling a lack of fear to question dogma or certain ideas? So let's start there. Well, I had picked up that there was some concern within uh, members of the Heterodox Academy that faith statements did have that function. And Zach, I would I would just say, certainly they could have that function. And I was very clear in my blog post that faith statements can function uh, very negatively or they can function very positively. And I was simply trying to enlarge the imagination of how they might function. I would say that all of us as human beings start out with assumptions that we don't argue for. And frankly, the larger academy is is now much more aware of that than maybe uh, at earlier periods in the modern in modern uh, in the modern academy. I mean, we're much more attuned to the role of perspective. We're much more attuned to the role of people's context, identity, and background. And so, uh, what face statements are really trying to do is identify what are those underlying assumptions of this particular community. Uh, You do a faith statement when you are concerned that the larger culture might not understand what you're trying to be doing. These faith statements are ways of signaling to particularly, I would say, applicants in the job market that, you know, these are the things that this community affirms. These are the underlying assumptions. And we just want you to know what are the things that that we take as those underlying assumptions. And in the case of faith statements, they really are about 
affirmations or declarations of what this particular uh, religious learning community takes as starting points. The larger academy in the modern world has not historically felt the need to do that because it's more like, okay, we, we all know what we all believe. And it's usually when communities are either trying to differentiate themselves or trying to signal that we have a set of concerns that maybe are not shared by others that you feel the need to declare themselves. This is really interesting to me because I'm trying to think about, you know, what would a, I guess, a form of a faith statement look like at uh, a secular university? And is that something like the free expression principles uh, from the University of Chicago? Is that kind of what you're thinking, or is it something a little different? Well, okay. So I'm a historian and everything I think about has to be rooted in context. So if you think about the roots of particularly uh, the Enlightenment, when the idea of reason and the methods of science were put in the forefront of sources of significant knowledge, and it was assumed that matters of faith and religion would be privatized, the assumption was that the academy is about going for uh, that place of unbiased, objective truth. And there's the affirmation, and you could root this in whether it's John Stuart Mill on liberty or all kinds of other free speech documents in the Western tradition that would argue that the way we come to objective truth is through unfettered pursuit of knowledge. And the assumption is that sources of religion grounded in revelation are intrusions on that search rather than um, uh, elements that might actually be productive and intention and part of that search. Right now, the academy, while it's still declaring, and I think quite rightly so, that we need to pr pursue free inquiry, we need to pursue the truth wherever it leads. I'm absolutely committed to those things. What the debate is about, really, is what are the things that contribute to that exploration of uh, truth wherever it leads? I mean, that's really what's at stake. If we were to ask the modern academy to make a faith statement, I think it would be a lot harder right now because it would have to include not just the earlier assumptions about unfettered objectivity, but it would have to include uh, right now all of the concerns of hermeneutics, all of the concerns around perspective, all of the concerns that we link to people's culture and background. And so it would be a much harder thing to write, but it would include statements about what are the assumptions that we think are going to lead us to that best chance of getting at the deepest, richest, broadest uh, truth about the human experience in its fullness? There's been a shift kind of since the 80s to now about what is, I guess, the best way to be objective and that these things change over time and evolved. And if that's not made explicit, which is kind of part of your blog post, sometimes we don't even know what is changing and what the assumptions were and where they are. In the university now, there are all kinds of these ideological frameworks that if you're outside them, they feel like closed systems where 
whoever's inside the system can explain people who don't agree with them away. You know, so whether it's Marxism or feminism or any of the uh, ideologies where someone who is inside can say to you, if you're outside, oh, you're one of those people. You're one of those people. And I can explain why you are that way. Well, to me, what I understand the Heterodox Academy to be trying to do is to say, no, as academics, we are going to take the pursuit of truth, the pursuit of honest questions, the pursuit of honest questioners with dignity. And we are not going to dismiss you because you are one of those people, whatever those people means to that person, we are going to ask you, why do you think that way? And let's enter into dialogue openly. So those are commitments that ground the work of the Heterodox Academy. I'm not going to uh, say, well, that's a faith statement, but in the metaphorical sense, that is the statement of those foundational assumptions that we're going to try to work with. In the past 10 years, we've seen a large rise of student activism around issues of diversity, equity, inclusion. How has that played out at Houghton College or at other religious universities? Is that a source of tension between some of the perhaps faith statements coming into conflict with certain progressive ideals? When faith statements are what they ought to be, they they should actually provide grounding for making statements about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so, for example, at Houghton College, our college was abolitionist in its tradition, uh, admitted women, ordained women. I mean, a lot of the issues around women and uh, abolition and race issues, Houghton was actually very much part of the progressive end of things in the 19th century when it was founded. Most of the issues of tension right now, Zach, are around issues of uh, sexual ethic and and not, not just issues related to LGBTQ issues, which is what sometimes people assume. It's really about larger questions of sexual ethic. And our larger culture right now really does believe that sexual behavior is linked to matters of individual rights and that as long as there's mutual consent and and people know what they're doing as adults, you know, everything's fine. And a lot of the debate right now is, are there other aspects that ought to be part of uh, commitments of sexual behavior? I mean, so are there obligations or are there things in addition to uh, mutual consent that ought to be part of what we're dealing with. Broadly speaking, the issues around sexual behavior, sexual ethic, that those are really where many of the issues uh, are in um, tension right now in the larger culture. I mean, not, not just in colleges with faith statements, but in the larger culture. I would argue that the faith statements ought to ground our commitment to uh, basic respect for human persons and treating people with dignity. So I don't see faith statements as much in conflict with DEI statements as much as their uh, DEI statements are more about the what and how faith statements are about the why. And and so it's the why that we're wrestling with as a culture right now. So 
just to end here, I'd like you to quickly talk through what lessons do you think secular universities can take from religious universities about the values that HXA really cares about, viewpoint diversity, constructive disagreement, free inquiry? There's no perfect religious institution and no perfect secular institution. I do think that uh, all of us right now need to recognize the importance of underlying assumptions. So in the modern period, particularly in the 19th and 20th century, institutions with faith statements have recognized that they are a minority position within the larger academy. So we're trying to function with integrity within the larger academy, but also with these uh, convictions around uh, a particular faith perspective. And so I think what religious institutions can be instructive on, if I can put it that way, is let's all recognize that we have uh, assumptions that we start with and name those and seek to be transparent about those ideals and seek to draw others into dialogue and discussion about those differences rather than uh, simply either assume they're not there or assume they ought not to be there. So that recognition that we cannot assume that everybody else thinks the way we do. So for example, any graduate of an institution with a face statement knows that uh, the larger academy would not share all of those assumptions. And my point is, why don't we all recognize that there are many people within the academy who don't share our assumptions about many things? And so let's name those things. Let's respect disagreement. Um, all of these institutions with faith statements take education seriously. They understand the difference between indoctrination and education. And I think that 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 is a really important distinction. And sometimes people that have not, or people that are suspicious of these institutions assume that they're doing indoctrination. Actually, I would argue that institutions with faith statements are especially careful not to be doing indoctrination because they know that if they're doing that, they're violating everything about their integrity, which is part of their faith statement. So to really recommit to education, not indoctrination. And I'm going to say here, what I mean by that is when someone raises a question, instead of saying about that, you shouldn't have that question or you shouldn't be saying that, you take the question seriously and seek to engage it. And to me, that's one of the fundamental differences between education and indoctrination. Part of what I'm so passionate about with the Heterodox Academy is I think there's an opportunity right now for the academy to demonstrate for the larger culture what it means to treat people who think differently from us with dignity. Our larger culture doesn't know how to do that right now. The academy, who already has these larger commitments to respect for human dignity, respect for freedom of ideas, we should be modeling what it means to take those values seriously. If the academy cannot do that, I don't know where else it's going to happen right now in our culture. 
Shirley Mullen on Heterodox Out Loud. Our conversation is one of the many thoughtful and provocative interviews we've recorded on our podcast. Find more and listen at our website, heterodoxacademy.org. We also love those five-star reviews on Apple, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to Davies Content for producing this show and to Kara Boyer on our communications team. I'm Zach Rausch. Till next time. Thank you.